Good morning, ladies and gentlemen, and we have an amazing episode of the CEO story today. We've got Richard Wilson, who is the CEO and founder of the Family Office Club. This guy is amazing. He's done some great things in the family office space, which deals with high net worth individuals and, as you guessed it, family offices. So, Richard, thank you so much for taking the time to join us. How are you doing? Sure. Great. Thanks for having me here, Casey. I'm doing great. I'm really excited to have you on because I've been tracking your progress over the years and it is astounding what you've achieved and the value you add to the high net worth arena. So thank you for all of that. Can you just share a little bit about your background and your story with the listeners and then we can get deep into the detail? Yeah, sure. So essentially I run an investor club. It's called the Family Office Club. Started in 2007 and we've hosted 150 live events now, uh, written 13 books, we've helped set up about 100 ultra-wealthy family office solutions for families. And the short of it is that we have uh, 1,100 members who are all raising capital for something. We have 3,000 investors who are all looking to invest in many different things. We're kind of the conduit between the two, and we uh, try to transfer strategies, structures, tax planning, and deal flow between those two groups. Fantastic. There's obviously a huge, huge level of importance there because like you said, the two groups of people don't always get connected in the right way to make a deal work. So having people in a company like yourself is really important. But let's rewind a few years back and uh, go from the Eagle Scout days all the way to running a multi seven figure business. So uh, what initially got you into this world? Can you talk a little bit about kind of university and then transitioning into the working world from there? Sure. Yeah, I, I started five different businesses before I got out of high school, everything from mowing lawns and stuffing mailboxes with an advertisement to mow people's lawns to doing things such as uh, selling long distance telephone service by calling all the parents of my friends in the high school directory when I was in high school and stuff like that. And then in college, I had a couple of businesses. And when I got out of college, I was doing risk consulting and it paid for my MBA, which I uh, paid for in cash, lived with my parents while doing that. Um, but then I got really bored doing risk consulting. It's about as exciting as it sounds. It's like accounting risk controls, Sarbanes-Oxley stuff. If you know what that means, I'm sorry. Probably dry, yeah. uh, and so I said, okay, at 23 years old, who's gonna pay me? you know, that much money, six figures. And I found out not many people. Um, so I had to do something meritocratic. So I decided I had to get a job in commercial real estate and sell commercial real estate or get into raising capital. I went the capital raising route. I moved to Boston. Um, I had my MBA done at that point. So I studied uh, through the Harvard ALM division, psychology of influence and persuasion while also raising capital. And I found out that my hedge fund clients could not raise capital from small high net worth investors. They needed to be accredited or more ultra wealthy, but I also couldn't go to institutional investors. They thought our hedge fund that we represented was too small. So they wouldn't put $30 million at a time to work in a hedge, hedge fund only with like 60, 70 million in assets. So what that meant is that I had to go after wealth advisory firms that focused on the ultra wealthy. And I stumbled on a couple that called themselves a family office. And I said, oh, well, what's that? Never heard of that before. So I started researching it, found a definition, but so what's your definition? On... That's a great stopping point because sure. so many people don't really understand what a family office is. So we'd love to hear your definition of that. Yeah, sure. So a family office is just an ultra wealthy wealth solution that hopefully covers the whole balance sheet and different financial aspects of a family's uh, wealth management. 
And it just means a customized investment solution to manage the wealth of someone who's ultra wealthy. And there's two main types. You can have a single family office. Like if you sell this podcast for $50 million tomorrow, you could build your own team. That's your own single family office. Or you could say, you know what? I just want to sit on a beach, have everything managed for me. I'm just going to trust this multifamily office over here that works with 50 other people who have also sold something or gone public and they'll manage all the wealth for me is kind of like a wealth management firm focused on the ultra wealthy is a multifamily office. So those are the two types of family offices. It just means a wealth solution for the ultra wealthy, uh, essentially. Perfect. Thanks for clearing that up. Okay. Then back into the story then. So you found a gap in the market and then how did you, you take over that space? Yeah. So basically what I saw was that the only people sharing anything on the market were a Bloomberg journalist who had never worked in the industry, a Financial Times article here and there. Uh, And there's really nothing else. You could go to a couple of the other membership websites that existed at that point, but you'd have to pay $30,000 a year to be a member or $1,000 to buy a white paper or $500 to be on a one hour webinar. And I thought to myself, that's so backwards because I just want a trail guide to help me figure out this industry. And nobody was being a trail guide to me. So at the very beginning, I started a blog on blogger.com and just started sharing what I was learning about hedge funds, capital raising, and family offices. What I found was that people cared the most about family offices and then about raising capital and then about hedge funds. And there's a big gap in the market because almost nobody was talking about family offices. So I wrote about it just once a week when I had free time, write a little paragraph of what I was learning. And I started getting like 50 hits a day to the website. And I got really excited, like, oh, wow, like people actually care about my dumb little blog here. Um, I then started writing like religiously, like twice a week, started getting 500 hits a day, 700 hits a day to the website. People started calling me and I'd get excited to talk to strangers and just spend my time just giving them advice on what I was seeing in the industry. And that's when I realized that uh, I was onto something. At that point, I started writing every day, mostly just on family offices, some capital raising, almost nothing just on hedge funds. And I started getting 3,000, 5,000 hits a day to the blog. I got invited to speak at the European Business Summit, and I was on the same stage, uh, not at the same time, but the same stage of that event as a couple of prime ministers. And I realized I got invited to speak at that event because I had put out 500 different blog posts on family offices and, and raising capital. And they thought, I guess, like, hey, this guy's written 500 things on it. He's not going to mess up too bad on stage. But I was 24 years old at that point, and I'd never spoken anywhere publicly. And I was next to all these 65-year-olds who are running countries and billion-dollar institutions. And I was like, what am I doing here? But um, the important part about how my business was created is that it set off in my head that if I add enough value in this one niche over and over and over again, that it's going to result in big exposure and a very unique position in the marketplace. And I could be known as the hedge fund or capital raising blog guy, which at the very beginning, that's what people knew me as when I went to like an event in Monaco, some guy met my wife and said, oh, your husband's the hedge fund blog guy. And I thought to myself, that's not the positioning I want to have for the rest of my life. That's a, that's a dumb, low quality sounding position. Uh, so then I basically said to myself, okay, well, the family office space will never go out of style. They'll always be more ultra wealthy. So I'm going to write twice a day, every day on the family office niche, buyfamilyoffices.com, write a book for Wiley and family offices. And for the last 14 years, we've just been seeing that vision of trying to kind of do well in that sandbox and be a top three thought leader globally on the family office niche. Once I kind of, once I kind of clicked in my head that we were on our way of doing that already. 
Amazing. So that's really interesting how you kind of got into that. So if we broke that down into chunks, it was trial and error at the initial offset. You did a few different jobs and, and found a gap in the market that was underutilized or there was definitely space for you to grow into it. You solved a solution for yourself and then you took massive action. So you were blogging weekly and then daily and then twice a day. And this is really a lot of the focus I want to put on this is the hard work that goes into the dedication and the focus of doing that day after day after day to build up, like in your case, I said 500 articles before you then get the gratification of being invited to go speak on stages. So there's a lot of work and effort that goes into becoming an expert in your industry or niche or whatever that is for the people listening. It doesn't just happen overnight. And I think the world that we live in right now, a lot of people are just expecting some overnight success. And that's just so far from the truth. It's unbelievable. What are your thoughts on that? You know, it's really interesting is millennials get a bad rap because many people say millennials just want to go straight to the top. They don't want to do the hard work. They're very impatient. They want to skip all of the, you know, climbing the ladder. And sometimes when I hear that too much, I think to myself, well, that's how I got the six-figure job out of my undergrad from a state university. I didn't accept the warehouse job for 36000 a year. I said, no, that's crap. I want a better job than that. So I went out and did educational interviews with 30 different people that owned businesses until I told one, I'll work for free until you give me this job because I know I can do it and you can just fire me on day one if I'm awful. And I proved myself there and worked in the job. And then that's how I got high earning. And I feel like authority is really taken, not given. So like part of this is like two sides of a coin. It was because of my own impatience as a quasi millennial. I think I like, I fit in there just by one year or something, but like um, my own impatience has led to some of my success, but somebody pointed out something to me. They said, Richard, the difference is you work ridiculously hard with a lot of focus, but you're also impatient. And Gary Vaynerchuk talks a lot about how he's very impatient with wanting to take a lot of action short term, but he's very patient in the results as long as he knows he's on the right track, right? So I think that's the, the difference. You can be impatient and expect a lot on one level, but on another level, you have to put in the work ethic and outwork everyone else who also wants to eat that lunch that's sitting on the table, you know? And, and the quality, right? So you could have all that, but if, you, if you're not up to doing the job properly, like you said, you could find me on day one. You also have to have a certain amount of natural ability or learn quickly to be able to execute at that high level. And obviously, the higher up you go, the standards just keep increasing. Right, right. Yeah, no, that's so true. And I think that um, you have to kind of go for it at some level. I mean, I remember walking through the computer lab in Harvard in the evening time one day, and one of my good friends was an attorney called me. And he said, Hey, Richard, I know that everyone around you is telling you to take this next job, because at the capital raising firm, I was getting so many press inquiries, I got on the front page of the Boston Globe. And all of the journalists wanted to interview me and not my boss who had 25 years more experience than me in raising capital. Nobody even asked for him or knew that he existed when they called. They were calling for me. And he was said, why, why are these people calling? And I told him about the blog. And he said, well, you have to delete that blog or quit the job. And I said, well, then I'll quit the job because it has great momentum and you're not seeing it as an asset. So I guess we're just not aligned there. So I quit the job. And by the time I went to go get another job offer, I put some simple advertising on the blog and I was bringing in more money from advertising than I had at that past job. And the attorney told me, like, you have something here that has legs to it. 
and you don't have five kids and a huge mortgage, you should just go for it. And you can always go back and take a job somewhere later. And I think hearing that at the right time changed everything for me. And I think some people just need to have the courage to go for it when they have some momentum, the downside risk, worst case, you go back to cubicle land or you go back and take the old job back, you know, et cetera. It's betting on yourself as well. It's so, it's so funny you should mention that. I had a similar experience when I quit corporate America and, and went full-time in my own business, but it was at a Tony Robbins seminar that that happened for me and the penny dropped and it just gave me that encouragement. Nice. So wherever that comes from, when you make that decision to, to bet on yourself and, and go all the way, that's definitely a powerful thing to do. So as we transition and talk more about now growing your business, so you went from a blogger to a public speaker, and now you've got a multi seven figure business that you run and dealing with all these amazing high net worth families and individuals, which is a very hard market to service. How do you go about finding great talent and retaining that talent? Sure. Um, I think alignment is what we try to do. So first of all, if somebody doesn't smile during the job interview, I don't hire them. If they're a salesperson and they don't sell me in the first job interview and hiring them, then I don't think they're very good at sales. Um, and I want to find somebody who appreciates the fact that I'm not going to cap them based on their age or a limited box that I'm going to paint them in forever. So a lot of people feel like they've never really been able to prove themselves. And I want our company to be a place where people can prove what they're capable of. And I'm looking for people that we can be put in charge of more and more, and they can autonomously manage their part of our company because we run a platform business. I manage the investor club division. So in family office club, we have our investors all registered at investorclub.com or doctors investor club. And I manage those deals every day, but my team manages our investor relations marketing agency, our investor database division, our conference division of 20 live events a year, et cetera. They, they manage all those other divisions. And so we need people who can be self-managing. And so the real key for us is to hire somebody that has a base salary we always give them a base, but we want to align them. So by launching something or by giving them a percentage of gross revenue in their division or a profit incentive, then they stay more motivated and then they do well when I do well. And then I'm not limiting their compensation to 50,000 a year plus, oh, there'll be a discretionary bonus of up to $10,000 if we randomly decide you deserve it at the end of the year. You know, people don't like that. That's, that's BS. No one likes that, you know, and it, it doesn't serve me. I want them to work really hard and nail the goals and double their division and make more money than I would have ever promised to pay them because I needed the performance to come through in order to pay them that much. Absolutely. No, I really, uh, I like that. And it aligns with a lot of what, uh, I know you are also friends with Gina Wickman and which kind of business philosophies do you implement within your organization? One, to have that alignment from the top all the way down. So everyone's pulling in the same direction. We've touched on a little bit of traction, but is there any other things that you use that you think would be helpful for the listeners? Yeah. Um, you know, I think it's called scaling up now, but the mastering the Rockefeller habits book really helped us when we were forming our company. And I was uh, mentored a bit by Evan Pagan as well on putting the right systems and KPIs in place. And so my team on Slack every day, says what their start of day goals are on Slack and the whole team sees it transparently and what their end of day goals are on Slack and whether those match up and what they're doing during the day. So everyone kind of has KPIs they're trying to hit, but also these stated goals for the day. So it's measurable and tangible, but then also we have monthly, quarterly and annual goals by division. 
And then we also use a software called Hubstaff so that when they start their day, they log in and it takes random screenshots of their screen while they're working. And we've used that even when we work in person, we've always used Hubstaff as well. And we've found that just holds people accountable and it's just another data point. You know, if you have a salesperson and their numbers are down, you go into their email inbox, you say they haven't sent more than one email a day for three days. And then you look on Hubstaff and it turns out they weren't even at their computer or they were on eBay or Facebook the whole day. It just gives you more data to kind of read the situation off of or address it. Maybe they were sick and they just didn't want to tell you they were sick or maybe there was some other issue that can be fixed or maybe they're just not right for the team. Got it. No, some really good tips there. So as you now grow on your team, time management and prioritization, like you mentioned, there's multiple different departments now within the company. How do you go about best splitting your time and your team's time between the different departments and the functions to run and service both clients and invest? You know, there's a lot going on in your business, both on these high net worth individuals, deal flow, analyzing. And then, like you said, multiple events that you guys put out is phenomenal how active you guys are. And then in person and now is back up and running as well as the virtual stuff. How do you juggle all that from a time management and prioritization standpoint? Right. Uh, great question. So every day I start my day with a laminated piece of plastic where I shave every morning and it says what my goal is for the year, like kind of my theme for the year, my monthly goals, my quarterly goals, my annual goals, and then some one-liner statements that if I follow those statements, I know everything will go better. And so I start my day with that compass and then the rest of my day gets filtered by that compass. And I know those are the preset goals. We also set goals by division, as I mentioned earlier, and we have the start of day reports. And then on Tuesdays and Thursdays are kind of my buffer days, as they say, in strategic coach. So that's when like, I just take care of a bunch of like nonsense emails and a bunch of just stuff coming in and out. Um, but Monday, Wednesday, Fridays are more of my strategic time days. So I'll get blocks of time to do things that are very important on Monday, Wednesday, Fridays. But honestly, most of our divisions, um, my team manages for me pretty autonomously. And I'll spend in some of our divisions just two hours a week um, in that division. And my team is really running it. And I'm relying upon their judgment to take care of customer issues or tech problems. And they interface directly with the IT department and, and get things fixed there to keep me out of it. Because at the end of the day, the more that I can focus on working with more investors and closing more deals, the more credible it makes it um, to be able to have a workshop on raising capital um, when we brought in, you know, $250 million in investment commitments uh, last year, or if we close like this week, we closed on $460,000 of capital coming in from two different investors and two different investments. And being able to mention that on a podcast like this and have it be verifiably true just adds to credibility. And it is a division of our business that uh, as we grow, it will be a higher end margin business for us. And so they know that that helps us and it helps us learn and the most important thing about our model, and if anyone else can design their business to do this as well, is that I don't like being bored. And so at our 20 live events a year, if I'm not teaching the workshop, I script the discussion panel questions based on what I'm curious about, figuring that if I've had to go to all 150 events the last decade plus, and I'm not bored, then hopefully our loyal members are not bored either. And then selfishly, every time I learn stuff, uh, it's good for me and my team, but then I just share it openly with our community because I'm not you. I don't have your podcast or your market position or your offerings. 
And same with my members. I don't see myself in competition with any of them. So I just openly share everything I'm learning. Like, hey, here's a cool structure. Here's a tax strategy. Here's a model to consider. Here's a negotiation trick. Here's a due diligence best practice. Here's a case study. And just kind of share that openly with people uh, as I go. Yeah, and that's one of the things I really liked about just following you online and your presence is the amount of content that you release, whether it's books, YouTube, you know, there's just always so much information that you're sharing and it's really good. And I think you you hit the nail on the head earlier when you referenced Gary V because he's very similar in that regard is that he learns something, he'll put together a package and boom, he'll give you it for free when he could have sold it for tens of thousands of dollars and made millions of dollars from it. But just to kind of keep building that relationship and adding value, which I think is the ultimate thing in the world that we're in with high net worth individuals is building trust and building value. Um, I think that goes a long way to it. Where do you see the family office space or the investor space move move into over the next two to five years? Yeah, so a family office space is going more and more mainstream. And what that means is that when people hear about the family office concept, they think, oh, okay, well, what if I'm only worth $7 million, but I love doing direct investments. I don't just want it all managed by my wealth manager, uh, wherever they may be. Um, They'll want something called a virtual family office, which is a very lean single family office. And so it just means that you have some of the benefits of a family office in place and you have very explicit thinking on your mission goals, objectives, and values for your family but also exactly what your strike zone is and what types of investments you're trying to make and what types of investments you're trying to attract. So I think the trend of virtual family offices being set up is gonna grow greatly. I think the number of multifamily offices globally um, is probably gonna double over the next four to five years. And I think we're really just in the beginning, you know, second or third inning of this whole industry. Most people still have no idea what a family office is. Um, And until that is not the case, then we haven't gotten even near tapping the potential because everyone needs to know what it is for at least some of them to opt in and say, I want that and then take action on putting it into place. And so I think that we got a huge growth track in front of us in the whole industry. Yeah, I totally agree with that. And I think you laid out the steps really well there where you don't have to go into a full-fledged single family office. You could go into a virtual multifamily office first and kind of grow your way into whatever is best for your situation, right? Right, right. Yeah, no, that's true. And most importantly is that you're very intentional about what you do with your energy, your money. And the worst thing I see people do is get wealthy, start making seven figures or sell a business. They start investing in a whole bunch of startups and a whole bunch of different industries. And they see that almost as diversification, but you're just taking massive risk in a whole bunch of different areas And what's most important is that you literally have the values for your family above your kitchen table for your kids or yourself to look at and that you align your strike zone with your risk preferences and your goals and your holding period. And you're putting money into things where you can be strategic capital and not just money going into a deal for at least the riskier investments you do, they should be strategic or at least a percentage of your investments should be very strategic. So you're setting up a platform or kind of a complex chessboard type approach to business. And that's how family offices operate. I was criticized early on sometimes by people who saw that we did multiple things and say, oh, why is it so complicated? Just do conferences or just do this. But then I didn't hear that from family offices. They would come to me and say, 
you're not just hosting events, right? Because you realize no matter how much money you make off of selling the event ticket, the real value is doing business with people in the room and getting a business deal done with them. So to them, it's so obvious that you should have a multifaceted business because that's how they created all of their wealth that you really have to not listen to people who are not at the level that you want to get to. Uh, yeah, fantastic point. And definitely you want to serve the people in the room that come to listen because building deep relationships again, comes back to value, right? And trust. And if you get those right. two key principles, right, which is what some of my family principles are and what we align with, um, that shows up everywhere. Right. Yeah, for sure. Okay. So as we look to wrap up, I like to end with this one question and just get different people's perspectives on it. So if you had to attribute your success between three factors, how would you apportion it between drive, skill, and luck? Hmm. I think that um, first would be drive for sure. Um, and the next part would be skill. But I think the skill is just picked up by having a drive to a very specific goal over a long period of time. So I don't give much of it to skill. I think um, when it comes down to luck, I think I was lucky to be born in America with a married you know, uh, mom and dad, I was lucky to be put into Boy Scouts early on. I was lucky to have other kind of, um, you know, advantages that I was just born into. But otherwise, I think you create all of your luck after that. So you might have some base luck that you're born into. But otherwise, I think the drive and the focus creates all the luck and, and realizing when you're getting lucky and having that drive to take have some courage and and grab something that's sitting in front of you and just pass, pass you by if you didn't grab it, I think is how you create luck. Fantastic. So Richard, thank you so much for your time. If people want to reach out to you, uh, what's the best way for them to get in contact with you? Uh, best way is just to email me directly uh, at richard at familyoffices.com. And we've got a ton of free materials for anyone who's raising capital at uh, familyoffices.com and commercialrealestate.com. And, you know, if you're a passive investor, we have a lot of free stuff for you as well at investorclub.com. Great. And we'll put the links below just to make that easy for everyone. Richard, once again, thank you so much for your time. You've been a great guest and shared some great value. Uh, thank you. Awesome. Thank you, Casey.